So it's Easter, and it's great to sing and to read scripture all about new life. And today we're going to get into a scripture that talks about that. So uh, before we do, we're going to have a quick word of prayer. Here we are, Lord, in homes scattered all throughout the city and the world. But today we are together. Help us, Lord, to encounter you and everything that goes forward for the rest of today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there's this story about a young 12-year-old named Cassius Clay. He and one of his friends were out in a mall one day shopping, and when he got outside the mall, his bike was missing. He ran back inside, saw a woman who told him to go to the police department, and he went to the police department and told the cop all about what happened with his bike being missing. The cop said, what do you want me to do? He said, I want you to find a boy, because when you find him, I'm gonna whip his butt. The cop said, well, if you're gonna whip his butt, Maybe I should teach you how to fight. That cop named Joe Martin uh, would end up being Cassius Clay's first trainer. And that young boy of Cassius Clay would turn into the heavyweight champion of the world, arguably the best boxer of all time, Muhammad Ali. Now that story shows us so much about how powerful human encounters are. That if you think about the most meaningful and profound changes that have happened in people's lives, they usually start with a personal encounter. Now, all throughout the Bible, all throughout scripture, you see that God encounters people and he doesn't encounter them when they've arrived. He encounters them right where they are. In today's scripture, we're looking at one of these encounters where Jesus encounters some people right where they are. And this encounter is life changing for them. Now, my hope is as we look at this and as we talk about this, uh, we ourselves would meet God in a fresh and brand new way today. There's a story about these two men on the way to uh, Emmaus Road. It starts out in Luke, the 24th chapter, in verse 13, and it says, Now the same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together, they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk alongside them but they were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you're walking? And they stopped walking and they looked discouraged. Now, one of the things that, uh, that hits me about this scripture is that the first interaction that Jesus has with them doesn't start with a sermon, but it starts with a question. Jesus asked them, what are you, what are you arguing about? And why do you look so discouraged? If you really want to think about how God really meets us and gets to the center of who we are, a lot of times it starts with a question. I've talked a lot about me and my time with my therapist, and most of the most profound revelations that I've ever had never came with someone telling me something, but it all starts with a question. And Jesus here starts with a question. He asked them, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you're walking? Now, God might be coming to you right now with some questions. Why are you discouraged? Why are you fearful? Why are you angry? Don't dismiss these and discount these as things that you're thinking about, but this might be how God is coming to us and, and meeting us in these moments. Now this year, uh, globally, we are all in the same situation of a global pandemic with the coronavirus. And we're in a situation where a lot of us are feeling discouraged about just the nature of our world now to go outside, to go, to go get groceries, and to see everyone fearful and wearing masks, it's just discouraging. 
On top of the discouragement, there's a lot of fear that I feel for myself, for people I love, about our well-being, our safety, our health. A lot of people are just afraid that they've lost jobs or they don't know about the certainty of their income going forward. So there's a lot of discouragement. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of anxiety. One of the ways that I think God would meet us is for us to understand why we're discouraged and why we're fearful and why we're so anxious about what's going on right now in, in our lives. So in the midst of this, God and his grace might be right here, but we can't always see it. Now, in this scripture, there's a couple of reasons why they were discouraged and angry. And I think their reasons for why they were discouraged and angry might shed some light into our lives right now and how God might want to meet us in this moment. Uh, the first thing was that they didn't, they didn't recognize Jesus. In verse 17, it tells us that he was right next to them. Think about that. Jesus Christ was right next to them, and they couldn't see it. Now, I don't know about you, but a lot of times for me in my life, I kind of just think that I can recognize what God is doing uh, in the world, or certainly in my own life. I know when God is here or when God is not there. And a lot of times, all throughout Scripture, you actually see the opposite, that God is right there with people, and they miss him completely. So in verse 16, it says, but they were prevented from recognizing him, and hope was right there, and they missed out on it completely. One thing this teaches us is that even if we're a follower of Jesus, that God can be right here with you and active in your life, and you and I might not even know that he's there and he's present. Now, we wouldn't be in bad company if we were people who missed out on Jesus from time to time. The men and women who follow Jesus the closest oftentimes missed out on him and his motives and his, what he was like, his character, uh, that God cared for them, that God was working with them and for them, and they just missed it. In Mark 4 and 35, it's one of my favorite stories in Scripture where it says, uh, On that day, when evening had come, Jesus told his disciples, Let us cross over to the other side of the sea. So they left the crowd and took him along since he was in the boat. And other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. He was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. So they woke him up and said, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Silence, be still. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Then he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Now in those moments, when I read scriptures about men and women who followed Jesus, and he was right there, and the first thing that goes to their minds and, and my mind sometimes, my eyes kind of just go to what's, what's wrong or what's missing. Sometimes it's something silly that's missing right now, like there's no NBA. Other times it goes to serious things, that we're losing our connections and our structure, and so many things uh, going around to, wor to worry us. And in these moments, I miss out on Jesus because the only thing I can see is the current storm in front of me. And I'm missing out on the Jesus who is with me. And just because Jesus is asleep, just because Jesus is relaxing in the bottom of the boat, doesn't mean that things, although they might seem chaotic, are out of control. So the first thing I think is we just miss out on what God is doing because we rely too much on our feelings and we rely on our own ability to judge the moment. But what if right now God was with you, that God was with all of us, that God had not lost control, but we just couldn't see it? I think the first thing that I would, I would want to be present in my life and your life 
is a curiosity of what God might be up to, not a fear or an accusation that God has lost control, but a curiosity. Now, this curiosity does not negate grief uh, and really fully internalizing the moment and not pretending like things are good. Too many Christians rush to a place where they say God is in control, and I believe that, and we don't fully feel the gravity of the moment. But what if God was right here with us right now and we just missed him? So the first reason that the two disciples on the Emmaus Road were discouraged was because Jesus was right next to them and they couldn't see him. The second reason is they were processing everything that was going on around them, but they weren't considering the resurrection. They weren't considering that Jesus himself was everything he had promised all throughout the scriptures and even to his own disciples that if you destroy this temple, I will raise it again in three days. All they saw was a present moment. And in that present moment, they knew he had been crucified and it discouraged them because all they can see was just now the end of uh, his life. They were not considering the resurrection. And we see this in uh, verses 18 through 21. It says, the one named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened there in these days? What things? Jesus asked them. So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Now, in their minds, it was over. Jesus was the one who was going to do all of these things, and now that's done. It's a wrap for that. What they weren't considering and incorporating into their, uh, into their lives at the moment was the resurrection, that Jesus was promising something that was bigger than just this moment. And Christianity is inherently a resurrection faith. If you remove the resurrection, it's not the same. Years ago, I went to a, a friend's house. I won't say his name because he might be watching us right now. I went to a friend's house and he decided he was going to cook for everybody. This was once upon a time when you were allowed to be near people. And we sat in his living room and he said, I'm going to make my famous fried chicken and yams. I was like, yo, this is going to be the greatest day ever. His wife was excited. I sat down on the couch. We talked for like a, a couple of hours. Finally, he emerged out of the kitchen with what kind of looked like chicken and sweet potatoes, but they weren't the real thing. When I asked him how he made the sweet potatoes, I wanted to find out his recipe. He took some sweet potatoes from a can, put them in a microwave, and poured syrup on top. Now, they might resemble sweet potatoes, but those are not sweet potatoes. If anything, if you ate those your entire life and someone were to come to you and say, uh, do you like sweet potatoes? You probably say, absolutely not. They're disgusting. I've had them over and over again. I just don't like those things, period. But that's not, that's not sweet potatoes. Where's the nutmeg? Where's the cinnamon? Where's the brown sugar? You got to bake them joints in an oven to get real, legitimate sweet potatoes. Christianity without the resurrection are like sweet potatoes out of the can. It might resemble Christianity, but it's, it's not the same thing at all. So what do we see in this text? We see that these men were looking at Jesus Christ and evaluating his life and his ministry without the resurrection. Now, one of the things I found in my own life to be true, and I've certainly seen this in so many conversations that I've had with people, is that anybody who discusses their life and their faith for this world only will miss out on the full meaning of what 
Christianity teaches and what it's really all about. It's meant to inform our lives, not just as something that we tack on to Easter service celebrations, but something that shapes the way we do everything in our life. Now, I know we're not having sports these days, uh, but I went to college in Baltimore at Morgan State University, and I played basketball there. And this is not a humble brag, uh, but uh, we were, out of the 317 Division I teams, we, we were ranked 310. And in the three years that I played, we were 15 and 75. So we weren't exactly lighting the charts on fire. But one thing that brings me nostalgia to the day, certainly not all the losing, it was uh, the national anthem that we sang before each game. Being at HBCU, a historically black college, we would sing, lift every voice, and sing before each game. And all over the country, different colleges, and certainly in professional sports, people sing national anthems before the game as a feeling of nostalgia, and people get teary-eyed and they cry. But the national anthem has nothing to do with the game played. As nostalgic as I feel about singing the song and going to the bench and watching us lose, the national anthem that was sung before the game truly had nothing to do with the game played. It's something that's nice and it's traditional, but it doesn't really affect anything. For a lot of us in our faith, when we talk about the resurrection, it sounds nice, it's a good tradition to talk about on Easter, but it has nothing to do with the way that the games of our lives are being played. The games of our lives on a day-to-day basis are not impacted by this thing we talk about in terms of the resurrection, and we're still so full of fear and discouragement in some ways because I think we're just living for this age. The problem in doing that is if you just live for this world, then when the world hands you something that is not fulfilling, you're going to be discouraged. You're going to be hopeless. What if this world was never intended to provide you with full satisfaction? C.S. Lewis, who's a whole lot smarter than I am, he says it like this. He says, people are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. We feel thirsty, and there is such a thing as water to quench our thirst. But if I find myself with a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true home, which I will not find until after death. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that home and to help others do the same. And don't buy into the lie that to be of heavenly minded means you'd be of no earthly good. Now, a lot of times when we think of people who are heavenly minded, that they're floating around in the clouds, that they are super religious and they are not living life on earth, that they are just thinking all about heaven and they are ignoring everything about what's going on right now. And to be honest, there are some people like that. But to consider the resurrection in your life doesn't mean that you ignore everything that's going on around you, but it does mean that you don't think that everything that we have right now is it. If you really think about it though, hospitals, nursing homes, orphanages, these were built by people who were really heavenly minded. They could be really generous with their money. They could be risky with their own lives. There's a a plague that happened in uh, 251 AD where these Christians ran in to take care of people because they were heavenly minded. When everyone else was fleeing the city in fear for their lives, it was only these Christians who truly went in to help people and they saved a lot of lives because of this. What made them risky? It was because they were heavenly minded. They knew that this world wasn't it. 
a lot of us would do very well to remember that this world was never meant to be it. And that's not to say you should ignore things that are going on now. We should work for justice. We should work for peace. We should work to preserve this earth. However, this world is not all that we were ever meant to have. So in the text, we see that these men were discouraged partly because they were not considering the resurrection. And the third thing we see in this, uh, in this passage of scripture is that they were discouraged because they were looking at God through the lens of their experience, not through the lens of God's words to them. In verses 25 through 27, it says, And Jesus said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Now, this is really important. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that the Bible is not about you. He's saying that the Bible is not about me. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase that the Bible stands for basic instructions before leaving earth, but that's a terrible explanation of what the Bible is. It's not about you. It's not about me. They're not a list of instructions. It's God's story of redemption. And Jesus is challenging these people saying, don't you know how slow to believe all of these words that were written? In essence, Jesus is charging them and saying, you're believing what you're seeing right now, but you're slow to believe the words that you claim to believe, the words of God that were meant to shape your life. And instead you're relying on your current experiences. I have uh, two children, uh, uh, a four-year-old and a one-year-old, soon to be five and soon to be two years old. And I was walking with my four-year-old the other day and he was saying, Daddy, I know how to cross the street. And I was like, I do not think you know how to cross the street. And he, we got into an argument on the corner because he's telling me, Daddy, I know how to cross the street. And I asked him, so, well, how would you do that? And he has not the slightest clue on how he would cross the street. Now, if I were to allow him to rely on his own experiences and his own wisdom and his own knowledge on how to cross the street, it would be catastrophic. He's four. He can't do that. For a lot of us, we're like the four-year-old telling our father that what we can experience, that what we know to be true in ourselves is more important than what our father is telling us on how life should go and what to expect in, in life. My four-year-old does not know how to cross the street. And you and I don't know really how to interpret the times or what's going on. And what Jesus is getting at is saying, listen, I want my words to be the things that are shaping you more than what you're seeing. So he chastises them and says, how slow you are to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And essentially what Jesus is calling us to do is that you and I would make sense of the world, of everything that's going on around us, not by what we're experiencing and seeing day to day, not by all the things on the news that drive you crazy that you can't control, but we would make sense of the world through God and his words for us. Now, how does that happen? Here's one thing I found to be true. Daily exposure to anything will change you. Daily exposure to anything will change you. Before becoming a pastor, I was a family court attorney and for seven years, almost on a daily basis, I would be in family court all over New York City and Westchester. And based on my experiences with family court, I just approach parenting very differently. My wife and I even have different philosophies and different boundaries for our children about sleepovers and other things, not because I'm better, she's better or anything, but just because all of my years of experience in family court really have changed me. 
And I would seriously doubt that anybody who's a social worker or anybody who's worked in a family court system would just trust their kids in certain scenarios because they have just seen so much. Now, I can't point to any day that was traumatic or a roller coaster of emotions, but just very gently over time, I've seen my life and my opinion on parenting and children change just because of my daily exposure. Now, the same thing is true with scripture. If you read it for one day, it's not probably going to do too much in your life. But daily exposure to it will start to change you. Now, one of the things that I love about uh, technology is our ability to, to give people things on demand. And one of the things that we've done at Renaissance is we've shot a, a class on how to read the Bible, and it's on our YouTube channel. Nothing would make me happier than for you to go and, and, and watch those videos if you're wanting to expose yourself more frequently to the practice of Scripture. Because make no mistake about it, Jesus wants to shape the way we are experiencing this world right now, not through our feelings, our emotions, our intuition, but based on his words to us. So this Easter is certainly not a time that any one of us thought it was going to be. Many of us are dealing with real discouragement, real fear, real anxiety, and for some of us, even real anger about our world and this pandemic right now. And I don't want us to be overcome by any of those things. Instead, I want us to consider, what if God is up to something? What if God is right next to us and we can't even perceive him, that we can't make him out? I want us to consider the resurrection. This world is not all it is and we're, what we're meant for. And to consider the power behind that. What is the power required to raise someone from the dead? We're told in scripture that that's the power that God has. And if God can raise Jesus from the dead, certainly he can do something in our lives right now. He can do something in our world. Now, before the resurrection, the disciples were filled with fear and discouragement and anger but God gave them something in the resurrection that would turn their lives around. And I want us to sit in the hope that God has the power, and even sometimes God is willing to let his people be temporarily disappointed. Not only that, but I want us to let God's words shape us. I want to leave us today with some of these words from the book of Psalms, which are prayers, that I want it to shape us for the rest of the week. This one comes to us in Psalm 16. It says, Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I will bless the Lord who counsels me, even at night when my thoughts trouble me. I will always let the Lord guide me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My body also rests securely, for you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. Amen. <laughs>